Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Adult Swim Podcast, Rick and Morty Companion Edition. I'm Matt Harrigan. We're talking about Rick and Morty number 402, The Old Man in the Seat. If you haven't watched it yet, you might want to watch it first. We're talking with some folks who made this episode, including Jacob Hare, who directed it, and Michael Waldron, who wrote it. We'll also hear from art director James McDermott, character designer Carrie Kilpella, background lead Robbie Irwin, background designer Tommy Scott, and music composer Ryan Elder. Up first, director Jacob Hare, Rick and Morty number 402, The Old Man in the Seat. Here we go. My name's Jacob Hare, and I'm an animation director on season four and five of Rick and Morty. So tell me about, first of all, your background. How'd you get, how'd you get here? What led you here? Um, I went to school in Savannah, Georgia for storyboard and comic book art. SCAD. SCAD. Yep. And then uh, I moved out here to work on low-budget indie horror movies and makeup effects back when there was still a DVD market and you could you know, kind of survive doing that stuff. What ones can we, can we know what ones? <laughs> uh, I worked on the 2001 Maniacs movies. Those were some of the first ones that I did. A lot of straight to DVD stuff in the early 2000s. Um, Starship Troopers 3. Um, right on. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I discovered that I, I should have probably started testing for animation a lot earlier. There was a lot of struggling and freelancing before I found out, you know, that you can take a test and get hired to animation. So yeah. uh, since 2006, I've been working in, in animation, uh, started as a storyboard artist, then assistant directing. And then uh, this is the second show that I've directed on. What are some of the other shows that you've worked on? Started at King of the Hill with Wes Archer. Started who, at King of the Hill. That's yeah. a pretty good start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I took it, uh, happened to have a roommate that was working on the show and he got me a test and uh, that was my first time working with Wes Archer who I work with here now mm-hmm. and uh, yeah started as a board artist went to an AD there and then ever since then it's just been jumping shows I worked on American Dad Family Guy uh, a Fox show called Border Town the great Mark Henteman yeah you yeah know. <laughs> I do yeah, yeah. <laughs> old friends and then um, on to Disney for a couple of years before coming here so you're here now. This is your first season directing. Of Rick and Morty, yeah. Of Rick and Morty. I directed it on Border Town previously, yeah. What a great episode. Yes. I was ecstatic because I am very public restroom phobic. I It's it's something that I've created personal art about and I'm passionate about. Yeah. So when I got the script, I was like, wait, did they, did they direct this at me? You know, uh, I was thrilled and... Um, it was interesting because the original script, the first draft that I got, had a lot of um, information in it that wasn't necessarily visual. It was just sort of like giving you the background of why Rick is doing the things he's doing and what's going on in his head, Just, just which was really cool because usually in animation, you just get a script that kind of just beat for beat gives you what you're going to deliver on screen. And uh, it was nice that there was some psyche in there. There's an, a, an emotional paragraph explaining... Uh, in the script, I saw what, what explaining why he has this 
personal big dick Rick shitter and, <laughs> and the emotional uh, thing behind his personality that would drive him to such a thing. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and uh, a lot going into his subterranean sewage area, yeah. which was originally uh, going to be a lot very pristine, no water, no feces or anything. The idea was that we were seeing a different side of Rick, kind of like a more le- less of a drunk slapping stuff together in the garage type tech and more of a Elon Musk side, I think is exactly what the script said. So it was cool. And I tried to keep that in mind with, you know, his acting and everything else that you were going to put on screen. Um, also, uh, the the planet of Omega, you know, uh, Omega, it was originally called Omega 2, actually. The the show has changed a lot, um, so I'm not sure if they still are calling it Omega 2. I think so. I think they are. But the idea that this was a, a wonderful sort of like oasis solitude for Rick is it's different from imagery that we've seen in Rick and Morty. It's usually hostile, fast, and furious, and uh, being able to to bring Rick into this sort of like peaceful, serene environment was was new. I feel like for the show, even uh, for my first time working on it, so it's striking. The backgrounds are amazing. Yeah, the the design department here did just fucking incredible. Work. Yeah, the show the show has evolved a lot from from the first draft that I worked on to um, where it, it came a long distance, and um, it was funny because the first time I actually interacted with. Uh, Dan and Justin was when I went to get notes on the first pass. We did a thumbnail pass and then I was going to meet with them at editing and I hadn't really worked with them hands on much. And uh, they were in the middle of talking about the butthole sequence. They were fr- they were just concocting that. And my first experience <laughs> working with them was them sort of talking about the trials of Buddha, Buddhist uh, Buddhist mysticism or, or something in inside Rick's ass, which became the uh, heaven sequence now that you see when giant Rick sits down on Tony. Right, so their conversation with you in the background evolved into that heaven sequence. Yeah, originally, I don't believe Rick sat on Tony in the in the uh, first draft. He he just kind of whisked Tony away to this hallucinatory dream sequence, which which was drastically different from the heaven sequence that that they're putting in there now. The first time, they were they were just mid deep talking about this this butthole, and and Wes said to me, "You got a good dose of what it's like working with those guys today." That's it. <laughs> So it was it was really cool. It's a big, dense episode too. Yeah. You know, it has uh, the stuff with the app, Glutie. You've yeah. got uh, the Jerry and Morty stuff on on board the ship. It, it's it, and I love episodes of this show like that that are jam packed, jam packed with a solid B story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. Glutie stuff is so funny. Yeah, he's I, a great character, and his his little team is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because the first week I got here, Glutie was like a four-legged little troll creature, and then the design evolved, and then the voice evolved, and it was really cool to see him just – and now he's just such an awesome character. He went yeah. through so many stages. Let's talk about the broken twig scene. Like that scene seems incredibly complicated with regard to all of the um, direction in it. Yeah. Was it? Absolutely. Um This long sort of quiet detective work sequence, which I actually love, Um, they referenced the Batman Arkham games, uh, the writers did in the script. Uh, That that was my, you know, when we launched the show, that was the reference I was given, which I played those games. And I I love uh, Batman doing high tech detective work. Quietly. Yeah. Specifically with um, these things that sort of extrapolate hologram sequences to kind of inform you of uh, what went on at at a crime scene or something like that. 
And so, yeah, uh, the device that he used, the manner in which all those uh, hologram creatures were, were cycled through to see if their impact force was what stepped on the twig, all of that, figuring that out was was very directed at animators. And, and it's cool that on this show, they let you run wild with it. They let you take a, a stab at it and really put your stamp on it. A lot of scenes in the season, I think, no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you. Yep. It, it's it's really cool. I mean, uh, animators dream of doing this type of stuff. You know, it's it's very visual. It's not just talking heads. And um, and yeah, the 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 detective work sequence in that one up up to the alien moose that turns out to be some sort of digital key that opens yeah. his personal rotates. His, <laughs> it's antler. so cool. And being able to just imagine like how these little gadgets work and stuff is 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 fun. It's it it really is. How do those ingredients that maybe aren't in the script get into the show um something like that which i didn't see in the script right well uh sometimes in the script it literally says animators go nuts with this or yeah uh reference the batman games but have at it just um and and the board artists will take a stab at it and we'll work back and forth or sometimes they just have a a a singular image in their brain you know sometimes in the launch meeting the writers will give us a very specific uh direction to go with that stuff but no, some of it's just figuring it out on paper, trial and error, too. We did a couple of passes on that um, twig sequence before we landed on what we have in there now. People who work on the show seem happy to go above and beyond what's required of them. Absolutely. Yeah, and each, each iteration of the script just keeps getting funnier each time a development occurs. You know, Do you get just... each, each iteration of it and then you have to adjust? Yeah, sometimes it it happens as a moving target while we're right in the middle of production, and some some of this stuff is is happening in post once it comes back in color. Um, the show is always evolving until it's done. Tell me about that Verma Burger scene. Did that change much from the original script? Yeah, I think everything got a little bit compressed uh, for time. I think the f- the first thematic pass we did at this was way over broadcast length. So that happens. And uh, yeah, but the, the, the sequence of Rick coming in and threatening his children, I think, was always in there. That was always how those beats went. This robot battle, highlight of the episode, no? Yes. Uh, that was a sequence I boarded myself. Uh, I usually will do that as a director. You split the show up into assignments for each board artist, and uh, you might take a, a chunk of it for yourself. Um and that was one of the first things I drew working on this show. Uh, there was a previous version that was more Rick base jumping in and just slaughtering all the uh, reptilians and then uh, the rescuing the robot. It changed somewhere halfway through, I think, at Animatic, where, where Justin came up with this idea that, no, he's hunting down the microchips of the robot's brain that were scattered everywhere. And so I got to still use some of the violent kills that we had concocted before, but it, it, it rearranged a little bit into this new sequence with him chasing down microchips on the deck of this crazy burning alien robot ship. Really, again, that, that's the same thing. They, they will hand that to you and go, um, hey, artists, have at it. Pickle Rick-esque violence, <laughs> chasing down microchips. There was no real script for that. It was more just pitched verbally by Justin. Tell me about that thing that grows out of the table it's sort of like a, a butthole type formation uh-huh. that rick grows i i think that 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 actually is something that wes archer did in post after i had worked on the show um it 
I, to me, I think it's the worst thing that you could do to a shy pooper is humiliate them with some horrible display of like, uh, it, you know, sci-fi feces like that. It was, it was disturbing when I saw it. But yeah, a giant butthole grows out of the table, shoots, I think fills the room with gas, and then a shit hand flips him the bird. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> it is. So this is a departure from king of the hill for you (laughs) (laughs) yeah four guys stiffly standing in an alleyway uh to um alien reptile robot slaughter on a spaceship it's insane uh my name is james mcdermott and i'm the art director on season four for rick and morty glutey the intern yep is he based on anything no um i had a it was originally called Appadoodle. <laughs> was the original? Yeah. Name. Was the original name? I had a design for it that they were like set on, and and then they changed it to Gluty. We had designed the main high intern character, and um, he needed a couple minions around that we were doing as just ancillary characters. And then through that, that actually became uh, Gluty, um, as by chance, by mistake. By and mistake. It, and so when when Justin saw the minion characters, he was like, oh, my God, no, this is Gluty. So that got changed on the spot. Kind of not too late in the game, but, you know, it was still early enough that, that, you know, board artists had time to add it to the mix. Do happy accidents happen a lot? Sure. And you keep them. Can you think of any examples? I mean, a lot of times, um, part of the magic for me in, in watching it unfold is when, um, we can see like three different people's takes on the same character and Justin will come in and he'll be like, Oh, I like the head of this one, the body of this one, the hands of this one. And then it's this Frankenstein character. And somehow he sees through all of it and it's like a perfect character. You know, it's like that easily seems merchandisable and it's a toy. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it has all those great aspects. And obviously we don't care about that for now because we're trying to make the episode. Jacob Hare director was talking about the evolution of the Verma burger scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, that whole that whole search for the chip, like yeah, because <laughs> the the robot warrior and the lizard warrior bit came in late. That was a late addition, and here you're setting like this massive epic battle just to find a freaking microchip right <laughs> within a freaking lizard, and like all the work that it took to to do that just to find this one tiny object. I, don't, I felt like that was part of their joke on us (laughs) so visiting rick's underground world feels like a significant advancement in this show yeah rick's lab you know at the you know the inner sanctum there below his toilet um was supposed to feel like this is new rick tech we hadn't seen before yeah um close to godliness it was supposed to be like this is a thing that he's been working on in the background that we don't know about and and but it's supposed to feel like a modern marvel and and you know just huge in scale and size but also 
you know, like a lot of the things that Rick designs or puts together and, you know, device wise feels clunky and, and, um, not necessarily like it serves its function. It doesn't necessarily need to look cool. And, but this was a space that's like, no, this is Rick's special, special place. So it had to be close to godliness in a way that felt sort of Zen. And, and, um, so we actually referenced a lot of, uh, Zen gardens and waterfalls and that kind of thing um, to kind of help guide us a little bit into uh, where we came in, you know, to the, to the final design of that. Here's Carrie Kilpella. She's a character designer. What's your specialty? Uh, I personally like uh, the clothing, like costuming for uh-huh. aliens and just like specific instances. Um, like within the plot, um, all of us draw all of the aliens, all the humans. We do all the parts, but my favorite part is coming up with the the outfits that the characters are wearing. Alien outfits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your inspiration for those? Uh, just a, a lot of movies, a lot of sci-fi or not even just sci-fi, like all movies, all fashion, mm-hmm. like couture outfits. Um, not everybody would think that, that fashion and couture would mix with primetime animation yeah but it does yeah tell me what you did on this episode the old man in the seat i designed glutey the one that's uh taiko itd yeah what a Uh, great voice yeah right but what a great character did that not start out as the as glutey oh it started out as uh it had a different name i forget what Uh it was or like appellate appellation or something Uh like that uh and there were the two interns and they were all supposed to look the same and they had a very, like, Justin Roiland aesthetic to it, where it was just, like, wonky eyes, like, two eyes, and, like, a big bulbous head. And I, it was the first thing I designed on the show, and I just went in a completely different direction. I kind of tried to match it to, uh, like, the Overlord character, and they ended up liking it and going with it. And wow. And two different intern characters, yeah. You designed the two interns also? Yes. The Taiko ITD Glutey toy was uh, the Comic-Con exclusive toy this year. Oh, how did that happen already? I have no idea. There's a bunch of Funkos and like uh, different toys that have already come out for it before the show even premiered. And they kind of give away some spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably, you got to be proud of that, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. It was the first character that I've designed anywhere that ended up in a toy. And it was the first toy of the season. So it was pretty cool. Do you have a toy? Yeah, I do. You do? <laughs> yeah, a few of us do in the office. That's exciting. Is that the goal of the character designer? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a plus. Yeah. I like to have like a physical copy of what I have done, but I don't know. It's not definitely not why I got into character design. No. Because I have toys because <laughs> I like drawing. So what do you think makes something like Glutey be turned into a product? Like what, what is the secret? Why do some things get made and some things don't? Yeah, I have no idea. I, Justin Roiland's really good at figuring that stuff out, and I have like some ideas for other characters that should be turned into things like pillows or like Snapchat filters or like other like uh, like marketing things. But for some reason, I just can't figure out like what makes a toy great. And I think that like he has a really good eye for that. And I don't know. They're like funny characters within the show. And so he makes good picks based on like voices and just like how they they represent 
themselves in the episode and i feel like the the best toys are the characters that people relate to the most or think are the cutest robbie Irwin. yeah tell me your title what's what's your background what's your story here um, background lead on uh, the fourth season. Background co-lead. Yep. Co-lead. Yep. Background design. Design. Yep. Walk us through your history here with Rick and Morty. Um, started off in the third season on second episode. Um, from there, uh, all through the third season, did background design, background cleanup. Um, the first background I did for the third season was actually uh, the concerto background for the tag of episode three you did the backgrounds yeah well and that was that your first task here at the show yeah it was my first task um initially it was supposed to be design and cleanup and then from there it just kind of uh blossomed into this fourth season it came into like uh background lead which i i sit and uh divvy up all the assignments for an episode when we get the boards in from the board artist and then uh, supervise on tracking each each background from each artist per episode. I got to design like the prime uh, high intern. The high intern. Yeah, the high interns uh, or the interns uh, major, uh, his main chair or his uh, throne room. Yeah. So I got to design all that. What is that? Is that based on something or is it just your own? Just my own. Coming out Giants, of your head. Yeah. I mean, we looked at Star Wars and how that throne room was kind of set up, but we really wanted something to feel grandiose in scale, but also kind of um, a lot different from anything from Star Wars or any of that vein. So um, that one was a, a, a lot of fun, but some of it gets caught off, cut off in, in the actual final animation. It's like we had designed this whole hub above him and the idea being that he had this all this information streamed streamed streaming from his chair up to this hub above him and it kind of looks like an arachnid kind of shape uh robotic device above him but it's just one of the most beautiful i mean i designed it so i shouldn't say that but it's <laughs> you can be proud of it it's, uh, I was just really proud of how it it looked overall and the whole sequence in that in that shot um is as beautiful to look at and that episode itself has one of the funniest sequences in it i think at this season for me it's one of the funniest sequences what sequence it's the sequence where uh near the end where we're inside the church and summer's getting married and uh beth goes to stop her and so we have numerous people busting into the church trying to yeah trying to keep that from happening and some of the lines and hearing Justin's uh, vocals with the characters. It's, it, every time, I, it just makes me laugh out loud. Tommy Scott is also a background artist. Tell me what you do here. I am a background designer officially, though I also provide concept art for uh-huh. set backgrounds. So it usually begins with the script. And I provide concepts for the various worlds, uh, both alien and uh, sci-fi, that they might be visiting uh, during their travels. And those concepts, when approved, and they're usually rough drawings or renderings, they're given to the storyboard artist to design the scenes based on. And they'll move the camera throughout those concepts to figure out how they want to frame the scene. 
um, the, the designs are more loose in that stage. But when I get those storyboards back, we do the finished, tightly drawn background designs based on each individual storyboard frame. So you started working on the show season three. Yes. What stands out in this first batch of five that's coming through to you? I guess over-the-topness could be a, a way of putting it, especially when you see the action going on screen. You know how you say with shows like, oh, it's even better than the last season. It's more crazy. This is literally the case with this season. Like, it will be unbelievably memorable. I did provide a few of the designs for, like, the fantasy toilet world that yeah. Rick wa- uh, was a part of. But uh, it was more Robbie doing the main concepts and ideas behind that. Uh-huh. Me, Michelle, Chris, and then the other designers, we took that and fleshed it out. It's, certain areas look a little different than others. Like, I believe Michelle designed the grass to look like alien wheat fields as Rick walks through it beautifully. Um, I was designing more of the toilet-like area and what plants might be in there and how the l- giant leaves from the redwood looking forest behind them would look um i think i had more of a role in playing in how the sky would look i wanted to give it this weird alien cosmos look that was both beautiful and strange at the same time i have a weird thing where i like to look at the well it's not really weird it's usually what i actually recommend other artists i just like to look at the real world i might type in into google search images you know cosmos or nasa images that the hubble space telescope might have taken sometimes I might even do randomized artwork on the screen, which means I might just play around almost like a Pollock painting and just see what comes of it and work from that to uh, take randomness and build from it. Uh, Sometimes I do have a clear goal and I just kind of know what I want. It does vary uh, from scene to scene based on what it is. I spoke again with Ryan Elder, who composes the music from this episode. The Toilet episode was a little hard to nail down, I would say, in terms of music. This was an episode where, in in every sense of the word, Rick is a villain in this episode. You know, he's he's obsessed with using his own toilet and having it to himself. And he's basically torturing another person to make sure they don't use his toilet. So <laughs> there was sort of a, for me, there was a, it was tricky to figure out what the perspective was, you know. It's so obvious Rick's the bad guy, but he's also sort of the main character of the show. So I can't make him a villain villain because he's because we want what Rick wants. You know, we at, at the end of the day, we want Rick to be happy. So, you know, that means that there, Dan and I talked about this a lot and came to the conclusion that it should not come from a place of villainy, but of determination. So I created a cue while Rick's sort of figuring out what's going on that someone else has started using his toilet that is it's a little menacing but mainly it's just determined it's uh it's determined and i go to that cue several times as he's on this journey of trying to figure out who used his toilet and then the other thing that i really love from this episode it's one of my favorite pieces of music i've written for rick and morty is the music at the very end of the episode uh it just i love being able to tell this story that that this guy actually meant something to Rick and the sort of reveal of the fact that this guy who was using his toilet really did actually mean something to Rick. And he, he feels bad that the guy died. And so getting to sort of emotionally tell that story along with the visuals and everything that's happening with the multiple Rick holograms and stuff really was inspiring. And I came up with a piece of music that I was really, really proud of and happy with. 
So music is critically important to the show. How would you explain its role? Yeah, I mean, I always think of my job is to support the story in a way that is, I, I'm happy if people don't notice it because that means I'm doing my job, you know? Uh, it means that they're engrossed in the story. They're just buying into what's happening and the music is helping tell that story. But occasionally, like this music at the end of Toilet, uh, I get to sort of take center stage and show more, uh, really tell the story with the music in a way that makes the music more obvious to the viewer, hopefully. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that music is obviously super duper important. If you watched it without music, it would have a complete, it would be, you would, you might not even notice it didn't have music, but you would, something would feel off, right? Um, it's all just all part and parcel of telling the story. My name is Michael Waldron. Uh, I was a producer on uh, season four of Rick and Morty, and I, I wrote the episode The Old Man in the Seat. So I actually started on the show. It was my first gig out here. I was an intern on season one, way back at the dawn of time. Um, and yeah, that, that was my first job in show business. And I uh, <clears throat> got to know Dan a little bit. I started a softball team that he played on um, at the animation studio. And that was kind of how we became pals. I was his coach. Um, so yeah, I was there at, at the beginning before anybody knew what the show was going to become. And then was working as an assistant and, and getting to know some of the folks and ended up before I before I left, I went and worked for for Harmon on Community season five. I think I, I did some scratch audio uh, in interdimensional cable and ended up as the voice of the guy eating shit, uh, Glenn. So uh, that 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 was me. That listen, that's still the most important contribution I'll ever have to the show. How do you get an internship at Rick and Morty season one? Uh, I, a guy I knew was had had just started work started working on it and I was a big fan of of Harmon and community. I'd only been out here from Atlanta for a couple of years and is honestly just dumb dumb luck and 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 yeah. What do you think he saw in you? Uh a, a good softball coach. Um <laughs> and and somebody who really believed in his uh his strength at the plate. Um and, you know, I had him bat and clean up and it, it was, it's, it's, if you want to make it as a writer, you've got to be good at sports. That's, that's the takeaway. And then suddenly here we are season four and you're a writer. <laughs> right. Just right. like that. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I kind of, the whole journey was I did that and stuck with Dan and, uh, went and worked on community and then came back and was working at Starburns Industries with Harmon and development and everything. And then I had a show that I'd created that was a one hour show, the best kind of set in the world of professional wrestling that went. And so I went off and, and ran that and wrote that first season. And then that kind of went dark for a little bit. And the, that, that was right around the time the season four of Rick and Morty was, was coming back. And so I got, got to come back on board as a writer, which was really exciting. Walk us through the genesis of this story. Uh, it was actually, it was an episode 
the, it was an idea that they tried to crack before, I believe. And it, and it was, listen, near and dear to, to everybody who's ever worked in a writer's, writer's room's heart. It's where in the building do you go to, to take a dump? Um, and, and, and I, you know, it's, I, I even remember back in the community days on the Paramount lot, uh, we, we, you know, Harmon had his secret spot and everything, the secret building. And, and when we all had our, our secret spots, uh, and so, so it's a pretty evergreen idea and shared experience that I feel like a lot of people, anybody who works anywhere really has. And we just started really, you know, saying, okay, let's, let's do this this year. And it, it quickly, what we got excited about was the chance to take such a silly kind of juvenile concept is, is where do you go to take your, your secret dumps, uh, but build an incredibly kind of like almost like prestige drama level. It just, just character journey, um, around it. And, and so, and especially it's the first time I believe that we're sending Rick off on a, on a solo adventure by himself. So it was just a, you know, a chance to, here we are in season four, dig a little bit deeper into this guy and who he is, what makes him tick. Uh, but of course, against just the backdrop of where does he take a shit? What's uh, your experience with uh, finding a private shitter during season four? I, I mean, ultimately successful. The, the problem is everybody, the one that you find, everybody else finds as well. I, I think in our case, it was, you know, we were on the second or third floor and there was one up on the fourth floor that, that you'd go to, I mean, very, and, and like Rick in this episode, if, if your, uh, sacred space had been, uh, desecrated, you know, it was an issue. It really ruined your day in the, in the episode itself. When, when Rick goes down into the subterranean, uh, lair where, where the toilet control panel is and control center is, Dan actually wrote a page long, almost just like manifest for the, for the artists, but it, it was, <laughs> felt like Dan's own religion on, on pooping and, and, you know, maybe how, how sacred that can be and everything. And it's, it's just a testament to how that guy can take anything and, and, you know, make it brilliant and, and emotionally resonant. What have uh, you picked up from him? Things like that from from writing on the show um i mean look he, he's he's certainly my my mem- my mentor and uh, you know i think with dan it really is kind of a, a relentless pursuit of perfection you know it's it's never it's never good enough and i i really admire that and but at the same time he's incredibly collaborative you know to to be such an incredible writer it doesn't matter. Even when I was a PA, if I had ideas, he, you know, he would take those in and everything. So he's, he's just always in search of the best, the best idea. Um, and just, I mean, yeah, there's, there's just nobody better on the page than that guy. Looking back at this episode, what are you, are you things that you're particularly proud of things that stand out, things that you had to fight for? I think, I mean, I, I really am proud that we did a dramatic story. Yeah. I I think that that's a thing that you only get to do 
a couple of times a season. And I, and I think certainly season four, seven, the episode order there, you know, fans are wondering, okay, you know, where are you going to take this thing? And, and, you know, the show has gone to those more emotional places before. And I think people always get excited about it. So I, I, I think it's just a whole new side of Rick. It's, it's him reckoning with somebody the the most unlikely of equals and adversaries. Uh, and, and so that's fun. And the fact that we did that in a story about taking a shit is just, that's, that's the dream. And also the, the artists on this one did so much of the heavy lifting and because, you know, the episode really hinges on like, is this a special place? The gag could really fall flat if it, if you don't feel a sense of wonder um, when when you come to this place, especially in an episode where or in a show where we've been to a, a million incredible places, it's like how how do you show the most sacred, the most incredible? And so those guys, you know, since I've left, the, the whole team's been hard at work just just making it better. I'm sure whatever whatever the final cut is will be even better than than what I saw last. When Rick first arrives on uh, I think on the toilet planet. Uh, we always talked about that being a short film, uh, so to speak. So I, I really, and it, and it was fun for me coming from just writing a one hour, um, show and, and, you know, it's just, so it's, I get to get to flex that muscle a little bit. And so, yeah, I tried to try to write it in as cinematic as possible for, for those guys. But again, it's, they're so brilliant. You just want to give them the, the most basic sense and just let them run wild. Do previous episodes sort of inform the direction that you go in? Are there are there references? Are there callbacks? Things that you feel like are there guide rails that you feel like you have to adhere to? I don't think so. Not in this episode. Second episode of the season, you know, was all right. This is one where we want to break new ground. Um, on the on the B story side, you know, we're, we're we've got more of a classic family adventure. Jerry's back in living with the family and everything. So we're picking up kind of the pieces a little bit after the end of uh, season three, when he, when he moved back in, I think for Rick, it, it, it's just, you know, we've seen this guy evolve a little bit, very slowly over the course of three seasons or so. So it's just trying to, to keep that, that small little bit of growth. How do you feel writing, writing for Jerry going from Rick and Morty to writing about Jerry and his, Oh the, man, it's tonal shift. It's a, Jerry's the best. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's other people have said he's that. So, other so funny. He's such a classic, just dumbass dad character. Uh, and and Chris Parnell, I, I I was fortunate to get to direct some of the voice acting um, over the course of the season. And I mean, that guy, you could just write anything, and he's going to make it funny. Do you sit in the uh, voice records? Uh, yeah, yeah, a couple of times this season, I did. What uh, what's interesting and cool out there that you like? What artists? What shows? What 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 do you watch? What's what's good to you? Um, I mean, most recently, I love Righteous Gemstones. That's uh, being from Georgia. You know, they 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 brought me on as as the redneck writer. That's that's the role I'm proud to fill. I I think I I had Rick saying y'all uh, every every step of the way. Um, that, that went away, <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I like Righteous Gemstones. I tell you, I love the MCU. That guy, Loki, he should have his own show. Yeah, if only. Yeah. You were uh, growing up in Georgia. Growing up in Georgia? Growing up in Georgia, yeah. Has that Did that inform this, this episode, really? Maybe. I mean, maybe. I mean, literally, it was, I just wrote every character saying y'all, I think, to annoy Dan. Uh, to, <laughs> and it was successful. Um, <laughs> but... Maybe a little bit. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's Rick going to the outdoors to kind of commune with nature and himself and, and to take a dump, which, yeah, if you grew up in Georgia, you've probably done once or twice. <laughs> What's the writer's room like? The writer's room, I mean, when I was there, it was just a brilliant group of folks. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just so talented. Mike McMahon was uh kind of running the room when we were there he he's since went off and he's doing uh star trek lower decks for cbs all access and solar opposites for hulu um but he was a great leader and somebody I, I learned a lot from and you know he'd been on the show since the beginning and he it was incredible to watch what a great creative surrogate he was for for dan and justin and then just so much talent um jeff loveness who ended up writing just he wrote like five episodes while he was there is as good as it gets um ann lane is amazing i think it was her idea props to her when we were really trying to figure out okay where where does this episode go it was ann who pitched well what if there was somebody who used rick's toilet from another another planet and that that broke it open for us um she's great katie delaney's brilliant Dave Horwich, Sean Perlman, Ed Vicola, James Siciliano, May Harsetti. I mean, it's the, the the whole team is just amazing. Are you conscious of uh, as you're writing it things that might appear um, with some permanence, things that will be either immortalized in toys <laughs> and the canon? Is that does that does that sit in the back of your mind? Yeah, I mean, I do this for the merch. That is, uh, <laughs> that's that's it for me uh <laughs> i mean yeah i think so with a show like this now god i mean that's coming in day one all right we got a 70 episode order the show is a huge success you know you know that it's it's something that people people love um and so you want to you want to give them more of that but also take some risks and and keep surprising people because i you know i think that's how it kind of started become immortal in the first place how has the show evolved from the previous seasons? Um, I mean, I, I think that the show, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just evolved in that it was already such a risky show that, that, that took such crazy chances. It's one of the, in one of the first episodes, the characters take the places of their dead selves and, and bury their dead bodies in the backyard. And that, you know, it's like from the, from the get go, you're like, Oh wow, this, this show can end on a, a Mazzy star needle drop, like a Sopranos episode. And then it can also have a, a ball sack monster f flying around. So I think that for a show that starts out the, the right out the gate was that crazy. The fact that, it's still innovating, still taking chances and everything is, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's remarkable. It's a testament to Dan and Justin and, 
I think that, again, I, I, if you think of Rick as a guy who's like Don Draper, or like Tony Soprano, the, those were great shows about, you know, damaged people who couldn't quite change, but over time at least became a little more aware of how they were broken. And, and so I, you know, I see Rick and Morty doing a little bit of that every season, which is really cool. But if, if people end up with, with pictures of Rick's toilet in their bathrooms, that's, that's, yeah, I've, I've done it. All right. Michael Waldron. Thanks to Christina Loringer for editing this and to Dave Bonowitz for his help. Special thanks to Steve Levy for organizing all of this. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Adult Swim Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we'd love to hear from you, Adult Swim Podcast at gmail.com.